Um, one of the episodes from my childhood that I only know by the retelling of my parents is from about age three. We lived right next to the church. My dad pastored the church, and it was a church parsonage. A church owned the house, and there was a yard in between us. And I don't, as a little kid, it was a long ways over there to the church. I don't know how far it was in, in Three Mile Bay, but uh, not that far, probably. And the church was kind of, uh, kind of like a daylight basement on the back end where you'd go in to start a fire in the, in the furnace. Was it wood or coal? must have been wood. It's a wood furnace, and that was one of my dad's jobs. And I must have learned this from going over there with him, as boys do with their dads. And one time I decided I was going to light the fire by myself. And, uh, you know, and, uh, and it wasn't in the furnace. I had gathered together some wood and poured some gasoline on it, I believe. And I was getting ready to light it <laughs> right when my mom came and saved my life, but probably not my behind. <laughs> I saw a boy one time who did that, and it wasn't a pretty sight. There are some fires that should not be started. And there are some fires that should never go out and should be tended and should be built up. And we're going to read about one of those in Second Timothy Please follow as I read, starting in verse 1 of chapter 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, according to the promise of life which is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, a beloved son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God, whom I serve with a pure conscience, as my forefathers did, as without ceasing I remember you in my prayers night and day. Greatly desiring to see you, being mindful of your tears, that I may be filled with joy when I call to remembrance the genuine faith that is in you, which dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I'm persuaded is in you also. Therefore, therefore, I remind you to stir up the fire, to stir up the fire of the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. And for those of you that have been here every week for a while, uh, usually I'm doing the slides myself. Uh, we have a technical glitch this week. And uh, so if they aren't quite in sync with what I'm saying, it's, uh, it's the devil's fault again for getting into the computer or whatever he did. But... So the first thing we need to understand this week is this. We need, to, we need to remember the setting of this passage. We looked at verses 1 through 5 last week, and we considered this fact. The Apostle Paul's in jail. Timothy had been his helper, his, his most trusted assistant, if you will. Uh, there are some verses in Philippians which uh, show us how close they were. Look at this. In Philippians, the Apostle Paul is also in jail. It's a different time. And he's sending this letter to the Philippian Christians. And he, and he says, I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly, that I also may be encouraged when I know your state. For I have no one like-minded who will sincerely care for your state. For all seek their own, not the things which are of Christ Jesus. But you know his proven character, that as a son with his father, he served with me in the gospel. 
That's pretty high praise coming from the Apostle Paul, wouldn't you say? He says, I have nobody who thinks like I do about ministry so closely to me as Timothy. So this is an extraordinary relationship. This isn't a, a, a common relationship. This is extraordinary. Um, and, and this goes beyond best friends forever. This goes to, you know, this guy loves the Lord like I love the Lord. This guy wants other people to love the Lord like I love the Lord. There's a real commonality of their heart in the Lord. And so because of that, there was a great friendship with them. Uh, Paul and Timothy are a little bit like uh, David and Jonathan in the Old Testament. David would be like Saul and Jonathan like Timothy. And, you know, David came along and he looked at the situation with the giant and he said, is there not a cause? And he, and eventually he runs after Goliath and takes him down. And, and, after, and then they, they go on to beat the whole Philistine army. You know, it's not just Goliath that's there. And after that's over, Jonathan, the king's son, talks to David and he goes, dude... <laughs> I want to be best friends with you. It says their souls were knit together. That's the way Timothy and Paul were. This was not a common relationship. It was extraordinary. And so because of uh, their like-mindedness about the gospel, sometimes Paul would say, Timothy, I'd like you to go here and do this or go there and do that. And as an apostle, he had the, the right, the authority, and the wisdom to do that, and he did. And one of the places that he left Timothy was in Ephesus. We have the book of Ephesians. So Paul is there. He ministers. He starts the church. But at some point, he leaves Timothy there, and he goes on to do other ministry. Paul ministers there for a while, gets it started, and says, Now, Timothy, you pastor this church. And so Timothy sometimes is with Paul. Sometimes he's away from Paul. Now in this book, Paul is in jail toward the end of his life and expecting to be executed, which he alludes to in chapter 4. Timothy knows that, and Paul writes to him to say, Now, Timothy, here is the baton. I'm turning this over to you. Now, he didn't say to Timothy, You're going to be the next apostle. But what he did say is, Timothy, you're going to have to stand on your own here. You're pastoring this church. You're respected as a leader because of your association with me. Other people are going to be calling you for advice. I suppose they wouldn't call. They'd probably walk over. But uh, people are going to be talking to you. You are going to be a significant leader, and you're going to be alone because I'm leaving. And so it, it appears from everything that we know about Timothy, he, his natural tendency was not to be an extrovert, not to be the leader kind of guy. His natural tendency was to fall back, be a behind-the-scenes guy, be a helper guy. And sometimes because of that, people pushed on him pretty hard. In 1 Timothy, Paul writes to him and he says, let no one despise your youth. Instead of, instead of letting them walk on you, you be a living example of Christ and they won't be anything to walk on. And so he struggled with that. And here in this book, he says, Now, Timothy, I want to give you something that's going to strengthen you. And the whole book, uh, in, in fact, I've gone through mine. This might be a good endeavor for you. Take a little highlighter and go through and look for the commands. There's a whole series of commands through here as he's saying, Timothy, here's what you need to do in my uh, absence. And so as we consider verses 6 and 7 this week, in that setting, we need to understand, first of all, that he says to Timothy, Remember what you've been given. 
Look at verse 6. I remind you to stir up the gift of God which is in you. Part of that command is this. Timothy, do you remember that God gave you a spiritual gift? Do you remember that? Now, we have to give Timothy a little bit of space because Christianity is new in the world and the Bible is not completed and he doesn't have his favorite study Bible version with all the notes. He doesn't have a library like I have. He doesn't have the benefit of having gone to a seminary or Bible college other than the personal teaching of Paul. And so we have to give him a little bit of slack and say maybe some of these things were still new to him, but I don't think that's the total problem here. I think it's more so that he knew some things and he wasn't taking them to heart enough. And Paul says, if you're going to be a strong man, you're going to have to remember what you've been given. The word therefore in verse 6, or if it's translated wherefore in your translation, is always a word that points backwards. It points back to the first five verses. And he says, because of all of this, you need to remember that you have been given a spiritual gift. The basis of the instruction in this book is verses 1 through 5. If you have never believed in Christ as your Savior, the rest of the truth that's going to be shared in this book is not going to be helpful to you because you can't live it out without the Holy Spirit in you. And so Paul says, remember what you've been given. First of all, you've been given salvation. First and foremost, you've been given salvation. Paul talked about this gift to Timothy that goes beyond salvation. In in 1 Timothy 4, do not neglect the gift that is in you which was given to you by prophecy with the laying on of the hands of the eldership. Here he writes it, stir up the gift which is in you through the laying on of my hands. Now we need to stop and recognize that God did a number of things in a unique and visible way during this transition period. There were times when God healed quite directly. There were other times when God did not. And one of them was Timothy himself. And the Apostle Paul writes to him in 1 Timothy and he says, Now take a little wine for your stomach's sake and your oft infirmities, as the King James says. Why didn't the Apostle Paul just pray a prayer of healing over him? Because God's will is not that everybody be healed. Sometimes God heals quite directly and miraculously. Sometimes God does not. And in the apostolic period, that was true as it is today. The difference is that in the apostolic period, God did allow the apostles, like the Apostle Paul, to do some miraculous things, essentially through his hands directly, so that people would recognize his authority from God. Very much like Christ himself, and for a similar reason. Christ did miracles so people would go, wow, you are the Son of God. God allowed Paul to do miracles so people would say, wow, you have authority from God, and he did. And in the beginning of the church, that was vitally necessary. The Jewish people had been under the Old Testament system for hundreds and hundreds of years, and now God is going to make some pretty radical changes. And in order to support the validity of those changes, he gave some miraculous abilities. And one of them is right here. Timothy became 
empowered as a pastor. He got the spiritual gift of pastor teacher or whatever his spiritual gift was at the moment that Paul and the other elders of the Ephesian church laid their hands on him. That was the moment at which he got this gift. Is that what happens when we have an ordination? We haven't had one here in this church since I've been here. But when we have an ordination, we, a young man feels called to the ministry, and at some point when he's proven himself, we have him defend his doctrinal statement, and we examine his life. And then at a point, the elders of the church will gather around and other pastors from other places and lay their hands on him. Does, is that when the gift is conferred? No. Clearly, from scriptures like this one in Romans, we see that we get the gift when we get saved. For as we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function, so we being many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another, having then gifts according to the grace that is given to us. What God teaches, this is one example of it, throughout the rest of the New Testament is this. When you get saved, the Holy Spirit comes into your life. And when the Holy Spirit comes into a life, he brings a whole package with him. He brings the conviction of sin, the conviction of righteousness. He brings a spiritual gift, the ability to serve God in some special way. And those are enumerated in passages like Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians 4. And we get an idea of what those are. Okay? If you have believed in Christ, the Holy Spirit is in you, and the Holy Spirit has given you a spiritual gift, an ability to serve God. Now, might that spiritual gift work together with some natural abilities? It might. Uh, God gave me the ability to sing, and he enhanced it by the education that I had and the vocal training that I had. But is music a spiritual gift from God? No, it is not. Is Is it a wonderful gift from God? Yes, it is. Could I use music with my spiritual gift, which I believe is teaching? Yes. I believe I could use music in such a way that I could teach through it. And I believe that I can and do and should. Colossians 3 says, speak to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Okay? So there are spiritual gifts, special abilities. And the first thing you need to understand to help you be strong as a Christian is you have a special ability from God to serve him. God doesn't pick and choose and say, well, you're, you're kind of a schlump Christian. I'm not going to give you a spiritual gift. No, God gives a gift to everybody. Now, he doesn't give the same gift to everybody as this passage teaches us. Um, we need to recognize that God has enabled us to serve him by a supernatural gift, and that ought to encourage us. Over the course of my ministry, I have many, many times been called into situations in which I felt entirely inadequate. You know, I could share many, many stories with you. I, I can think of one in particular, and I won't even describe it because it's, it would be too discouraging to you to hear the, the, the situation. But so, some police officers called me into a situation. They said, we want you to do this and this and this. And I looked at that and I said, what in the world? You obviously think I walk on water. In other words, they couldn't get it done. They want me to get it done. One time they put me on the outside of a line of police tape. 
with a crowd of about 30 or 40 people. And they're on the inside with guns. And these people were outside with guns. And I thought, what in the world do you think I'm going to do here? Okay, now I, I, I realize probably most of you won't be called into those situations. But you might feel that way when somebody comes up and says, hey, you ever thought about teaching a Sunday school class? And your knee-jerk reaction is, whoa, you're in the wrong place. I can't hardly jerk my knee anymore. But... And you've got to run away. Hey, stop a minute. God has given me a spiritual gift. And I might feel inadequate. And indeed, I probably am inadequate. But that's the point. God. God wants to do something through you. One author that I read, a fellow named Hughes, put it this way. In truth, God always calls us to minister beyond our natural endowments. No matter how great they are, you may be naturally eloquent, but your giftedness will never be sufficient to preach the word. You may be merciful by nature, but that is not enough to be able to live out the full call of God to be merciful. Take heart. God's call is always too great for us to do in ourselves. But if he calls you, he will equip and enable you to do it. You have been given a spiritual gift. And so Paul tells Timothy, Timothy, remember, God gifted you to do this work that's tough, it's challenging. But that isn't enough to know. We need to know something else. We need to know that we need to remember to develop what we've been given. Interesting turn of truth here and an interesting way to express it. Um, next slide. The word here literally is the word, it's based, it's a compound word based on the word for fire, and it literally means stir the fire. Stir the fire. It's the word pyro, where we get our word pyromania from. And it means stir it again, do it again, stir it. And it's written in the present tense. And in the Greek language, what that means is stir it, stir it, stir it, stir it, stir it, stir it. In the morning, in the afternoon, in the evening, ain't we got fun? Stir it all the time. It means keep on doing it. It's not something you will, you will give a big old stir to and then you'll be done. He says you have to stir this gift. You have to stir up the fire of the gift. The Holy Spirit is compared to fire by Jesus Christ. In fact, there's a negative command that kind of goes on the opposite side of this when we're commanded not to throw water or to quench the fire of the Spirit. So the Holy Spirit comes in at salvation. He gifts us for service. But now there's something for us to do. You see, Paul didn't say to Timothy, you need more of God. That's a terrible mistake that many people make. When you get saved, God gives you all of it, but some of it needs to be worked on. He says, Timothy, you need to use and develop what God has already given. Timothy didn't need a miraculous spiritual experience. 
He needed to fan the flame on the fire that had already been put inside of him. Now here's an important contrast, and I hope you get this. You cannot do anything without spiritual life. That's what verses 1 through 5 are about. You cannot do anything without the spiritual life and the gift that God implants, but you must do something with the life he has implanted. See, those of us who believe that God takes the initiation and salvation and we are the responders, uh, we understand that God is on the end of that rope pulling us in and that he's the one who has to forgive sin. We can't do anything to contribute other than believe. And so we would never tell an unbeliever, now there's a whole bunch of stuff I want you to do, and then God's going to save you. That's absolutely wrong. We'd say, look, Mr. Unbeliever, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. And that's what needs to be said to the unbeliever. But once we cross the line of belief, now God says, look, I've put some things in you, but you need to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, knowing that it is God who is at work in you. And so... Paul writes to Timothy and he says, Now, Timothy, you remember that day when I laid my hands and you received a spiritual gift. You are able to serve the Lord. There's work for you to be done, work for you to do. One author put it this way, Just as a fire must be constantly stirred lest it die out, so Timothy and all Christians must be constantly at work exercising the gifts which God has bestowed. Another commentator made it much more simple. An unused muscle atrophies. You know what that means, atrophy? It means it diminishes. I've been, work, I've been working at working out three times a week for three years, almost three years. And the thing that I hate most about having my back messed up is I can't work out because, frankly, I need to. And I know that when I pull back on my exercise routine, which I have to, both for for sake of the pain and for sake of the instruction of the doctor, I know that my muscles will diminish. They will literally diminish. I will still have the same size, but I will have less muscle and more personality. (laughs) Right? And, of course, that gets really extreme when somebody gets, uh, you know, maybe they get paralyzed in their legs and the muscle, you know, their legs will get real small. That's because the muscle just goes away. And unused muscle atrophies, now it won't disappear. Your spiritual gift will not disappear. God will not take it away. Your ability to serve will not be removed. But if you want to be a strong individual... then you need to stir that fire. Now, how do you do that? How do you do that? Did I put some points? There's one. Do the activities the Lord commands regularly. Do you know that serving the Lord is just that simple? Let's list them. Let's be a class for a minute. Tell me the activities that a Christian is supposed to do regularly. Tell me one. Pray. Read the Bible. Do what it says. Obey. Be thankful. thankful. 
serve, give. Okay, you see, you want to serve the Lord? Do the things the Lord says regularly. In other words, God's put something in you. There's a sense in which it doesn't matter what your spiritual gift is. And the reason it doesn't matter is because the Holy Spirit is going to take what he's put in you and he's going to go, hey, look at that. And you're going to see an opportunity to do something in the ministry here or in your neighborhood. You're going to go, wow, that looks really fun. That looks really cool. I'd really love to do that. Or you're going to look at some things. And and honestly, those of you who I've asked to do things in the church, you know I always ask this way. I say, look, uh, here's something I'd like for you to do. do. Do you think that fits for you? You're free to say no. Because I want, see, what I'm hoping is when I say, would you do such and such? I'm hoping, and I don't know until I ask, that the Holy Spirit is in there going, you should do that. And the Holy Spirit will do that when it fits with your gift. Or when it fits with a responsibility that maybe doesn't require a ton of giftedness, but really just has to get done. The Holy Spirit will prompt you. And that's when you've got to say, yeah, I'm going to do that. I'm going to do that. Now, eventually, as time goes on, you may, you may come to see, and give me the next point. If you talk to people around you, they will help you understand what you're really good at. Uh, if I want to create a creative ministry, I say, hey, Kim, I've been thinking about something. And in two minutes, she goes, yeah, we can do this, and we can do this, and we can do this, and we can do this. I don't know what spiritual gift that is. But there's something in her that sees an opportunity, especially if it has to do with outreach. Maybe she has the gift of evangelism. I don't know. But if you talk about an outreach thing, she goes, yeah, yeah, and she gets all fired up about that. Okay. Now, if I go, Kim... Would you like to come up front and talk? What does Kim say? No. No. Now, I don't know what that is either. But you, okay. And I know I can talk that way with Kim and not embarrass her too much. Okay. Ask somebody else. I know what she's good at. Okay. So if you really want to know what you're effective at in the ministry, do the ministry And then go to the people who you trust and say, what do you think? You think I'm serving in the right place? You think this is is what I'm gifted for? Or if you're looking ahead at some new thing and you think, boy, I really want to do X, Y, Z. Go to your friends that you trust, that you have already served the Lord with and say, I want to do X, Y, Z. What do you think? And if the first words out of their mouth are, Be gracious and say, oh, okay. (laughs) Well, we'll talk about that later. (laughs) You know, but maybe they'll go, man, that sounds like it's right up your alley. Okay. Now, I don't know if that sounds particularly spiritual, but it seems to fit the pattern here. Paul looked at Timothy and he said, Timothy, you're a godly man. I want you with me. Timothy didn't raise his hand. He said, Paul, 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 Paul. No. Especially from what we see of Timothy's uh, hesitant nature, Paul pulled him in, and God used him. So, uh, 
Develop your spiritual ability by consistent spiritual growth. Did I put that there? I did. You want to be strong in the Lord. You want to be strong in the service of the Lord. Be growing in the Lord. I met somebody a couple of weeks ago, and we spent some time talking, and one of the questions, uh, Sue and I and, and uh, this new friend and, and his wife, and Sue said, what have you learned in the last year? And you know what he said? He said, I've learned that I have got to be in the Word every day because otherwise I'm depending on myself to serve, not on other people, or not on God. And I thought, wow, what a great lesson. And that's the kind of thing you will learn if you're in the Word every day. One of the first classes I was required to take in Bible college was Christian Life and Witness. They didn't assume anything in Bible college. They, they assumed that you knew zero. And we're going to start right from the beginning and teach you everything you need to know about the Christian life. Over 10 weeks, we were supposed to memorize 50 Bible verses, five a week, and, and uh, be able to put those on quizzes every week, and, and all 50 at the end of the quarter. And I was so bad at that that I thought I was a lousy Christian. And truth be told, I was still a lousy Christian because I really wasn't trying that hard. But you know, a couple years later, I finally started working at living for the Lord, and I've been working at it for years and years, probably 35 years. And after a while, I know probably at least 50 verses. (laughs) I probably know more than 50. I probably don't know them as well as I should. But you know what? It's not because I'm really smart. It's not because I have a great memory. But it's because every day I try to learn something. And every week when I study to preach, I try to learn. I will tell you right now, I preached on 2 Timothy the year that I, that I came here. In my church in Tuckwell, I preached on it there. I didn't realize I'd already preached through it once. I'm trying to preach through you know, different books of the Bible for my own growth as well as yours. I didn't realize I'd already preached on it once until after I chose it as a topic because I'd been spending some time in it. And I got those notes out and I went, oh, dude, I've already preached through this. Those notes are on the shelf. Okay, And I'm going to read them every week to see what I preached before and how I expressed. In fact, this week I read one thing and I went, oh, that was a pretty cool way to express that. <laughs> but I'm not preaching the same sermon I preached 10 years ago. Because I need to study the Word. And I need to let God build me day by day by day. Your habit... Your habit of Bible reading and church attendance will go a long way toward fanning the flames of whatever gift God has put in you. The more you know God and walk with Him, the more He will direct your steps in service. Now the fourth thing we need to remember is this. Remember the nature of what God has given you. Look at verse 7. God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. This is the only place in the New Testament this word for fear is used. And it's not the word phobia, which which normally is translated fear. It's a word that means cowardice. Now, I know it's really, it's kind of mind-blowing to think that God said, Paul, put this down. I have not given you a spirit of being a coward. 
you almost would think, God, do I really need to write that? And I don't, I don't imagine Paul and God had talks like that. I think the Apostle Paul wrote to Timothy, and he just understood all of the truth that God had given him, and God pushed in him, and he said, God didn't give us, God didn't make us cowards. In other words, cowardliness in the ministry of God is not from God. If you didn't know that, take note of it. That means the next time you feel cowardly, just stop and go, wait a minute, that isn't from God. That is not from God. Now, you may have a good healthy fear. You know, a fear of fire or some other fears. Those may be good things, but not a cowardliness toward God's service. There is such a thing as a good fear of God. There is such a thing as a good fear of physical harm, a healthy fear. But this is talking about running away when you should run to the ministry of God. I referred to David and Goliath earlier. The whole army of Israel was cowardly toward Goliath. And David came up and he went, what in the world is wrong with you guys? Now, it wasn't because of David's great courage that he was born with. He said, is there not a cause? He said, this ungodly Philistine has cursed and made fun of Jehovah God, the true God. And he said, that can't be let go. Cowardliness is not from God. God has done other things in us. Satan and his emissaries are the ones who seek to paralyze Christians with fear. Such apprehension does not come from God. And that's a quote from uh, John Phillips. So what, is, what has God put instead of fear? Number one, instead of fear, God has put his power at work in us. Ephesians 1.18 says, the, I'm praying for you. If you read the whole passage there, it starts at about verse 14. I'm praying for you so that the eyes of your understanding would be enlightened or you know, the, the light would come on in your mind so that you would know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. When you are faced with a situation that makes you cowardly in God's ministry, the step back is to go, wait a minute. The same power that raised Christ from the dead is in me. Now, don't raise your hand. But think about this. Do you feel that powerful? <laughs> a lot of times we don't. We don't. And in fact, what this passage is telling is, is, is not telling us feel powerful. It's more so claim the power. Now, how do you do that? Well, you do what David did. David ran toward Goliath because he knew God's word. He was acting on God's word. God said, look, there is one God and you shall worship him only. And, and, and David said, this guy's making fun of God. I know that's wrong. And so off I go. I know I'm so short. I don't even fit in the armor of the king. I know I'm going after him with a stone and he's got a, a sword and a spear so big I probably couldn't even pick it up. The, the spear, you know, the great big thing. He said, doesn't matter. God said, 
And so I'm going to do. Faith is doing what God says, especially when you can't see the outcome. Because God's power is at work in us. When we are vacillating and apprehensive, we can be sure it is because our focus has gotten on ourselves and our human resources rather than on the Lord and his available divine resources. There are many times in life when we say, I can't take any more. I can't do this. I'm scared. And all of those statements are true. But you are not the measure of the resource available to you. The power that raised Christ from the dead is at work in you. Turn with me just a page over to chapter 4. This here is an example of the Apostle Paul living out what he was teaching Timothy. Look at verse 16. At my first defense, my first court appearance, no one stood with me, but all forsook me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood with me and strengthened me so that the message might be preached fully through me and that all the Gentiles might hear. Also, I was delivered out of the mouth of the lion. Did you get that last phrase? This is sort of like an add-on that doesn't even matter. He goes, yeah, they threw me in the lion pit and the lions tossed me back. They said, this old guy's too grisly. No, God saved him out of the mouth of a lion. But the thing that caught my eye as I read this is, God, you know, here I am, I'm standing before Caesar and all of these armed guards and all of these dignitaries and so on, and they're going, tell us your story, little man. And he says, all of my helpers, and he says, but the Lord enabled me What did the Lord enable him to do? Look at that, would you? The Lord enabled him to fully preach the gospel. That's what turned his crank. He said, there I was in front of Caesar, and I got to preach the gospel. And look why that was so important. So that all the Gentiles might hear. Somehow, in the Apostle Paul's mind, maybe he had hit all of the stratas of society but not Caesar. And here he is in front of Caesar, and he says, okay, God, it's you and me. And he lets go. Oh, and I was delivered out of the mouth of the lion too. Wow. The Apostle Paul was not somehow naturally endowed with with strength at every turn. In 2 Corinthians, he says, we are hard-pressed but not crushed. The antidote for fear is recognizing that the life God implants comes with some accessories. And the first is power, and the second is that God's love is at work in us. God's love is at work in this. I found a comment on this that really opened my understanding in a way that I never have. Because Jesus had perfect love, He could face Satan and the cross without fear. 
He loved Annas and Caiaphas, the high priests. He loved Herod Antipas and Pontius Pilate, the civil rulers. He loved the soldier who scourged him and the man who nailed him to the tree. He loved poor lost Judas and the dying thief who cursed him. Isn't that the most incredible thought? That he, I mean, <laughs> Jesus is in the process of dying for the sins of the guy who's killing him. Perfect love casts out fear. Oh, I, I don't know how many times I've read that verse over the years, but I got it this week because when you act out of love, you can do hard things. I don't know how many times I had to wade into conversations with, with my kids that I knew would be unwelcome by them. Okay? And they were not particularly bad kids. I'm not trying to say that. I'm just saying there's many, many times a parent has to, has to crack that door open and say, hey, we've got to have a little talk here, Johnny. And why do you do that? Well, if your heart is right, you do it because you want little Johnny to grow up and be a, a, not only a decent human being, but a godly one. It is the parent who doesn't care that sits in the corner and lets Johnny do whatever he wants. It is not a wonderful freedom for Johnny. It's a wonderful slavery that's being built one day at a time. Fear makes us want to avoid anything difficult with people. I met a person one time who said, I don't believe in confrontation in the church. But what in the world? You don't believe in it. Well, you can choose to say the scripture isn't true, but it's still true. There are times when we have to sit down and do some hard things if we are really motivated by the love of God. Or, or let's put it this way. We can sit there and say, okay, God, I know this is going to be hard, but you put your love within me, so please help me do this hard thing. It's not bad standing up here speaking all of God's truth because you can't all think I'm really talking just to you even though many times you do think somehow I've found out what's going on in your life and I'm preaching to you and I'm not. But you know, when there's only one person sitting in front of me or two, it's a lot more challenging and a lot more temptation to want to soft pedal the truth. I don't, I don't want to be mean. I don't want to be hurtful. I don't want them to dislike me. But you know what? God says, look, I've put my power in you and my love in you, so it's just your job to get the word out, do it as graciously as you can, and I'm going to do the rest. But if I love people, that's what I will do. If I love you, I will stand up here and tell you the truth. The truth is, though, that God's love is what empowers that, not me. The third thing in this antidote to fear in serving the Lord is realizing God's self-control is at work in us. Now in the New King James and the, and the King James, we see the phrase sound mind in verse 7. God has not given us a spirit of fear, but a power of love and a sound mind. Literally, literally this could be translated a safe mind. So, uh, the NIV translates it self-discipline. And, and, or self-control, and, and that's along the idea. But the idea, I think, really springs out of the truth of God's word. Listen to this from the Psalms about what makes... Uh, if I was to say, how can you have a safe mind? 
Listen to Psalm 73. Here's the psalmist. It's not David. It's a different one writing. And he says, Truly God is good to Israel, to such as are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the boastful when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there are no pains in their death. This is, in other words, this is his deluded thinking. But their strength is firm. They are not in trouble. They don't have difficulty as other men, nor are they plagued like other men. Behold, these are the ungodly who are always at ease. They increase in riches. Surely I have cleansed my heart in vain and washed my hands in innocence. He says, he says surely all this godliness I've been going through is a waste of time. But when I thought about how to understand this, how should I think about this, it was too painful for me. Until I went into the sanctuary, the temple of God, then I understood where the ungodly are going to go. You want to have a safe mind? Think God's thoughts. This fellow here in this particular situation got looking around and he said, look at that ungodly so-and-so driving that new Mercedes-Benz. I do all this godly stuff and I'm driving this old Ford. He got to envying the wicked. He said, their death isn't even painful. That's how deluded he got. When did his mind get clear and his life strong? He says, I went to church and all of a sudden I went, oh, oh yeah, they can have a great life, but someday they're not going to end up where they thought they were. And so his thinking, you want to have a safe mind? Have a godly mind. When we think like God, we can live and serve in the confidence of God. Fear is pushed out of our mind by God's truth. It's as simple as that. I got Derek to help me this week on Monday because there was part of my backyard project undone and needing to be done and I am still supposed to be taking care of myself. So he did the heavy work, and uh, I did the light work, and we managed to get some grass seed down, got some dirt in, got it all shaped around, got some grass seed down. And then uh, part of it we had to bring dirt in. Part of it, the topsoil was already there, and in that part, the weeds had already started to come up. I mean, these are the weeds that look like plants out of a nursery somewhere, the great big giant things, you know, big roots. And... And, you know, I was paying him to work, you know, but I still hate to say, Derek, we got to pull all them weeds out, brother, and it's got to be you because I cannot get down on my hands and knees and do that. But I said it anyway, you know, so. <laughs> and bless his heart, he got down there and pulled all them weeds out because I am not going to put a bunch of grass seed down and have a bunch of weeds going. Do you know that weeds grow by themselves? You don't have to plant them. You don't have to tend them. You don't even have to water them. It's a miracle. It's a miracle of Mother Earth that somehow weeds grow on their own. I haven't watered that area since it's been put down. But you know what takes great effort? is growing a lawn. You've got to put down good soil. You've got to put down some new fertilizer and the seed and some mulch to hold it down. You've got to water it every day a couple of times. And there's already weeds coming up since last Monday. And I can't wait till the grass isn't growing enough. I get in there and take those things out of there. 
Weeds and sin grow by themselves. But godliness and the service of the Lord need work, need effort. The fire needs to be tended. The fear of doing God's work doesn't need to be planted in the Christian soul. It grows wherever the fire of the Holy Spirit life isn't maintained. May God help us maintain and develop what he has given us. Let's pray. Father, help us help us do what you've told us to do. Help us stir that fire that you've put within us. And help us to see your miracles. It may not be quite as big as slaying a, a physical giant, but you're going to do some miracles along the way. And I pray that you'll let us see that and you'll excite our hearts to serve you even more and to be strong in you. I pray in Christ's name, amen.